In the northwest corner of Venezuela, where the country meets the Caribbean, is the Maracaibo Basin. During the rainy season, the basin is filled with ephemeral ponds, but for the rest of the year, it's dry, the sun-baked soil forming deep cracks. Amazingly, the temporary ponds are home to a special kind of fish. These fish are annual killifish, Ostrofungulus limnaeus, to be specific, and they live exclusively in these temporary habitats. When their ponds dry out, it's the end of the line for juveniles and adults. They all die. But it's not the end of the line for embryos, and that's what makes this species so special. Killifish embryos survive using an extraordinary developmental trick called diapause. Diapause means that fish embryos enter a kind of dormancy, a long period of suspended development. Diapause is common in insects, but it's also found in crustaceans, other fish species, and even some mammals. Killifish embryos can survive for months without water or oxygen, but when the rainy season returns, the embryos reboot development and eventually hatch. Diapause is a great trick for enduring really tough environmental conditions, and in spite of its potential value to humans, namely Elon Musk on his first trip to Mars, we still understand very little about it, what processes initiate it, what terminates it, and basically how it's achieved at the physiological and molecular levels. Today we chat with Dr. Jason Podrabsky, a professor of biology at Portland State University. Jason uses the annual killifish to study extreme stress tolerance in vertebrates. I think about coming out of dormancy. Do you remember Apollo 13, the movie, right, where the, everything went, went wrong and they had to restart all their batteries in exactly the right way? or it was going, the whole system was gonna fail and they would never make it back to earth. That's the way I think about um, coming out of dormancy because everything's shut down, but man, if you don't start things up in exactly the right sequence and make sure that everything is in sync, it would be very easy to exhaust all of your energy stores or to start up the wrong process first and damage, you know, um, some other part of the cell. In this episode, we talked to Jason about the pros and cons of diapause, its mechanistic basis, and the incredible developmental history of the annual killifish. We discuss how this and other diapausing species can help us understand how some biological systems cope with some of the most extreme environmental conditions on Earth. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. All right. Well, um, Jason, thank you so much for, for joining us today. We're excited to talk diapause. We're excited to talk killifish. And there's an enormous ground to cover here. But let's set the table. I'm going to let you do it. It's your expertise. What's diapause? Why do we care about it? And why did you start studying this in the first place? So diapause is essentially um, an organism that stops what it's doing and turns its metabolism down and, and goes dormant for a period of time. It's it's common in, across the animal kingdom. Actually, it's common in, in all life. So uh, we don't call it diapause in microbes, but they go through a similar dormancy period. But diapause typically is found in uh, early life stages of, of animals. And probably the best um, analogy that I've heard is it's like taking your furnace and turn it down to the pilot light. So they essentially reduce cellular activity and organismal activity right down to the very minimum that it takes to stay alive, to be alive, and they sit there and wait. And the reason for this is that many organisms live in uh, environments where it's not always conducive to reproduction or feeding or being active. So it's, it, it's a way to synchronize your life history to when food is abundant and it's um, conducive for reproduction and growth. We had... Um... A little while ago, 
um, we had uh, Herman Ponser, who's an anthropologist at Duke, on. And he has a new book, relatively new. By the time this comes out, it won't be so new anymore. It's called Burn. And what he talked about in that book was this sort of ceiling effect on metabolism, right? So that the way to manage weight best was about how much you put into your body, not necessarily how fast you burn it. And so in that episode, we talked a lot about basal metabolic rate. In other episodes, we've talked a bunch of basal, about basal metabolic rate. And that's traditionally defined as the kind of minimum cost of life, right? But diapause is a lower level, right? It's the pilot-like condition. So can you help me understand the relationship between basal metabolic rate and something that's obviously lower? Yeah, so at, at basal metabolic rate, the cell is still active. It's still producing proteins. It's still pumping things in and out of the cell, replicating its DNA potentially to get ready to divide later on. When an organism uh, enters into diapause, all of those sorts of things that are normally required to keep a cell um, structurally intact and functional, those all get turned down as well. So they stop making new proteins and they uh, create conditions that stabilize the proteins that they have. They stop their membranes from being so leaky so that they don't have to maintain the difference between the inside of the cell and the outside of the cell actively, they do it passively. So it's you can think about it as finding ways to passively support life uh, rather than actively supporting life. And there was uh, Jim Clegg many years ago with, was thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be alive and thinking about something like a, an Artemia embryo, right? So a brine shrimp embryo that can be completely dried and has unmeasurable metabolic activity, but it's still alive. You just got to add water and it somehow starts up again, right? So that's sort of the extreme, the extreme case where you're like, so structurally it's alive because it has all of the things that we, that we count as needing an organism or something needing to, to be alive, yet there's no metabolic activity that we can measure. I mean, obviously there's probably some there, but it's it's really low. So would you say that these Artemia are alive because they've somehow kind of like frozen their their information in some way that makes it so that it can just, you know, come right back once conditions are, are better? And is it is it that they're for sort of freezing their information in a way that most organisms cannot? Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly uh, the way I think about it. Or I think about it as sort of, freezing entropy, right? There's always this, everything's moving towards disorder and decay, and somehow they're able to uh, stabilize their structures so that they're not tending so quickly towards that. Uh, and of course, information is, um, you know, part of that. Uh, the It's captured in the 3D structures of proteins, the 3D structures of their membranes, uh, which are very different in a dormant um, but dry or uh, animal than they would be in a cell that's just stopped its metabolism, but is still um, in a condition where proteins can move around and and um, do their jobs. So yeah, Jason, what's the difference between a basal metabolic rate and me the metabolic rate when an animal is diapausing? Ballpark, yeah. When, when you, it, I mean, it depends on a lot of of different factors, but I'd say you know it's it's between usually about seventy to ninety percent lower than basal metabolic rate when you're dormant. Uh, and the, the organisms that are really the champions of this, it may be 99% lower than basal metabolic rate. So it, it's, it's really quite amazing. And, um, you know, we, we don't 
understand all of the mechanisms that are in place that allow you to drop metabolism that much farther below basal metabolic rate. Um, we do know some of the cellular physiological mechanisms that have to be regulated, but we don't know necessarily how that genetic program is put in place that, for instance, stops cells from making proteins or stabilizes the proteins that they have. So That's just so intriguing. And this is a kind of question that I, I tried to ask Herman and I think has come up with some other guests too. Why is there this great big space between basal metabolic rate and diapause? I mean, it's almost like a switch function that you're either, you know, minimum cost of life or the super low level, and you can't exist in that area in between. You shut it almost all the way off or you're at a low-ish level. So you're asking, like, why why can't you dial basal metabolic rate down to 50% of it? Yeah, why isn't it a continuous decline? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Why do we have to go down to almost complete shutoff? That's a really good question. Um, well, I, I guess the way that I would approach that is to think about you have to do something fundamentally different within a cell to shut the metabolism down to that pilot light than you do than than you're doing even at basal metabolic rate so at basal metabolic rate there's still protein turnover for instance right you're making new proteins proteins are breaking down at the same time so and you're trying to maintain protein homeostasis or the same levels of proteins um, that process is no longer needed when you're dormant because one, you're not making proteins anymore. And two, most dormant organisms have created mechanisms that can stabilize the, the proteins that are there. So we've, we've talked a little, uh, several, several times already about stabilized proteins. So just, just mechanistically speaking, how, how do cells stabilize the proteins? Are they invoking, you know, a set of heat shock proteins or what? Yeah, it depends on the different species. So Many species accumulate things like trehalose or sugars. Well, trehalose is a sugar, but other sugars like sucrose that um, can actually go in and sort of replace the the role of water in stabilizing structures. Um, other um, organisms have specific molecular chaperone proteins, like you're talking about, heat shock proteins that um, keep proteins from aggregating or keep them in their native structure. And then there's a whole nother group of proteins that are called dehydrins or late embryogenesis abundant proteins from plants. They're, they're also found in, in various animals, especially those that can um, survive being dried out. And those tend to um, coat membranes and, and help uh, stabilize other structures within the cells. So uh, let's dwell for just a second on this uh, accumulation of, of sugars and them assuming the roles of water. So, so I read a little bit about this and with respect to cold tolerance and I'm, I'm aware, but I've never studied this, this phenomenon of vitrification, um, you know, which is like the, as I understand it, the, the water kind of becomes almost like a solid thing because it's so structured by all of the, you know, the hydrogen bonding between the different, different molecules. So, so can diapausing organisms go into this state, even at high temperatures? Or is that something else? Yes. Yeah, so uh, for, for certain organisms, uh, like nematodes, for instance, or some yeast, they build up enough of these sugars. Um, most of the time it's trehalose because it has the, the right um, spacing of the hydroxyl groups. It looks a lot like water. And what you're right, they, they can vitrify. This happens in plant seeds as well. And I liken it to, it's like making hard candy, right? So you can, you can warm up sugar and water and eventually it crystallizes or it, it turns into hard candy. And that's sort of 
what happens when you vitrify or, or turn what was a biological liquid into a biological glass. Um, and so that happens in, in a number of organisms. And it usually has to do with water levels. So of, oftentimes you'll start with all this water, um, you know, because life is based on water. And as the water gets removed, let's say you're in a dehydrating condition, um, that causes the um, constituents of the cell or the production of this trailose to turn on. And then eventually the, the ratio of water to trailose causes it to vitrify. And when it does that, it just stabilizes everything around it. That's super beautiful. So survive bad times by turning into hard candy. <laughs> there I mean, you go. It's a strategy for life. Uh, what a sweet idea. <laughs> Jason, what's your favorite non-killifish example of diapause? I, I think it's got to be this delayed implantation that happens in mammals. I'm just fascinated by this. There's fertilization and then the embryo starts to develop right before it's going to um, implant into the uterus. And instead of implanting, it goes dormant and it can sit there for, for months and maybe even longer. Um, and it happens in all sorts of species, in marsupials and in carnivores and things like that. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by that. In humans? Well, it hasn't been found in humans yet, but um, I'm not convinced that it's not possible, so... Maybe that's why. You mean under some circumstances, like it could be a plastic thing where the, depending on the mom's nutritional state or something. That... I think it would probably have to be engineered. I don't think it happens naturally. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Okay. Gotcha. Is there any pattern at all in mammals that is sort of attached to some phylogeny more so than others or particular life history? Or is it really just scattered everywhere? Yeah, it's, you know, it's scattered around, but there are definitely groups where you see more. So the carnivores, things like minks and, and wolverines and uh, things like that have a number of different species. And then there are a number of different ungulate species that go through long migrations that use it. There's the marine mammals, um, like seals and sea lions. Um, it's spread throughout there. It's interesting when you find it in a group, in a lineage of animals, it's typically not all or nothing. It's not like the whole group has it. There's usually, you know, some representatives that have evolved it and some that haven't. It feels like most of the examples we talked about and that we're going to talk about involve diapause early on in the life cycle, so early life stages. Would you say, is that a general pattern or are there things that show diapause like, you know, juveniles, adult adult stages? So diapause can really happen anytime during the life history or life cycle of an organism. It tends to be um, more common early in the life history. So either in embryos or larvae if you're an insect. Um, but there are lots of examples of adults, um, mostly in the insect world where adults actually diapause. Um, in, and, you know, if you, we don't call it diapause, but if you look at things like mammals, we have um, adults that go dormant that we call it hibernation or torpor, but it's really a very similar physiological state. So... If I, I never, I've never counted it out. Now that you say that, I need to go and look and see how this is distributed. But I think the preponderance of, of occurrences would be earlier in the life history rather than later. And, and would you say, is that because it's somehow easier for early stages to evolve it? Or because ecologically speaking, they're more vulnerable and there's, you know, more of a, a sort of need to, to have it in the quiver? I've thought about this a lot because... Um, even in annual killifish, there are three different phases of diapause and they're used for different reasons. And, you know, there's the 
first way of thinking about it is complexity of the organism. So if you can, uh, it may be easier to go dormant if you only have a few cell types around that don't have to talk to each other and don't have a complex organization. However, there's so many examples of organisms that do go dormant later in life when they've got a full system. So it's possible, yeah, but it may be a lot more difficult. I will say that um, it seems to me that the earlier that the diapause occurs in the life history, typically the, the more resistant they are to environmental stresses and the more likely they are to survive through uh, the unfavorable period uh, compared to those creatures that tend to use diapauses or dormancies later in life. Yeah, I'm intrigued by, you know, you, you said that hibernation and torpor are comparable to diapause. Can we dig into that a little bit more? Because to think of a diapausing grizzly bear just sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how, so how, how different, how similar are diapause and, and hibernation? I knew I shouldn't have brought up torpor and hibernation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I, I think I had... I think of dormancy on this uh, long continuum. There are some organisms that can really turn everything down to absolutely the pilot light. And then there are other ones that can use dormancy to conserve energy, but, um, but it doesn't, they don't reach that same level of metabolic depression or that, that others do. So the reason I think they're similar is, is that you can probably attribute I don't know, a large proportion, 70, 80% of the basal metabolic rate of a cell to just a handful of processes. Pro protein synthesis and turnover and pumping of ions will do will get you probably at least 60 to 70% of your basal metabolic rate. And every time that you see an organism using some form of dormancy, they're, they're regulating those two processes. And I think there's only so many ways that you can turn those processes down. So if you think of like a hummingbird that goes through a daily torpor, I mean, they have a super high metabolic rate during the day. And if they contain, you know, if they continue with that metabolic rate all night, they would, they would starve to death. So they have to shut things down. Um, and they're, they're using the same basic mechanisms as an organism that's doing the same thing, but instead of needing to survive a night, they're going to need to survive a year or several months or something. Yeah. So I was asking that question to circle back to the sort of how complex, how many cell types organisms have, because clearly grizzly bears are going to have a whole lot more than, uh, you know, brine shrimp. So if they're not necessarily getting into that pilot light space, I think at a hibernating bear, they're not getting to the pilot light space. They're getting to that kind of, you know, hummingbird-esque kind of metabolism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could still wake them up, right? Um, in fact, you should have Hank Harlow on here sometime and have him talk about crawling into bear dens. And... You're you're the third or so person that has suggested that. Yeah, we definitely have to have him on. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more? Um, we can't talk diapause and everything without mentioning the the tardigrade. And are those do those guys diapause? Or are they quiescent? I mean, those words are, are are can they be used fairly together? Or are they different things? You know, there, there are two really different forms of dormancy. So diapause is a predictive dormancy where it's a cue from the environment, um, either from uh, your mother or, or one that you, as a, as a talk about an embryo, can um, interpret yourself. And that predicts that, that unfavorable conditions are coming. So for diapause, you'll actually um, induce a program that makes the embryo go dormant even though it's in conditions that are conducive for development at the time. So it's a predictive diapause. Quiescence is a reactive 
um, dormancy, where you take something away that an organism needs, and in response, it goes dormant. Uh, so for tardigrades, they're the champion of surviving without water, right? And so what happens is, you know, in their natural environment, as the, the moss starts to dry out, um, they produce a number of different molecules and prepare for, for being dried out. But once they make that preparation, if you pull water away, um, they will, they'll um, immediately react by collapsing into this ton shape and then going dormant and allowing all of their cellular water to, to leave. So, so the, the, one of the main ways to know whether something's a quiescence or a diapause is how quickly the organism will resume activity once you put it back in conditions that are conducive to, to survival and growth. So for something that enters quiescence, as soon as you put it back in favorable conditions, it will rehydrate and then they'll immediately become active again. For something that's in diapause, there needs to be a specific cue that brings them out of diapause. So they'll stay in diapause even if you put them into um, better conditions. Let's switch over and talk about cues for a little bit. And I'm, I'm just trying to imagine you know, the various cues that different lineages would cue in on. And, and I'm imagining that it's going to have to do with sort of basic stuff necessary for life. So things like photo period or, um, you know, availability or unavailability of food or, you know, presence or absence of water. Um, but are there any sort of predictable patterns there? And are there any commonalities in the way that those those cues are are translated inside the organism into signals that say hey you know it's time to go into diapause yeah so for diapause especially if you look at embryonic diapause it can either be um, something that's cued um, by the maternal environment so something that the the mom is sensing in the environment either photo period temperature food quality and they'll actually package the eggs in a way that, that um, induces them to enter diapause. Or it can be those same cues that are, that are um, sensed by the embryo itself once it's released in, in most organisms which release their, their um, eggs into the environment. So uh, I think the most predictable, most of the cues that they use are things that um, we recognize as predictable cues for the changing in seasons. So it'll either be photo period if you're in a temperate environment or thermo period is becoming, um, I think, something more and more important. So, Jason, that's a new term for me. Can you what what is that? Thermo period. It would be just the the temp, normal temperature cycles that you get during the day. So, um, you know, I mean, it's similar to photo period, but you can you you know, if you're buried in the dirt, you can experience a thermo period. It's much more difficult to experience a thermo or a photo period, right? Because there's not as much light that penetrates into the soil. Although I will say I'm learning a lot about soil and light dynamics and light penetrates the soil farther than I ever imagined. So yeah, so they're queuing in on things like that, that, that can change. And that's why you'll see for lots of different organisms that enter diapause, there are circadian um, clock genes that are involved in the, in the process. I don't think we really understand yet how they're involved and how that information is integrated, but they're definitely looking at these um, seasonal cues. Um, the other one is definitely food availability or food quality. So there's definitely essential fatty acids and other um, compounds that tend to be abundant in food sources during growth periods and then tend to decrease in their 
in their quality and quantity um, late in the in the season, if we're thinking about a temperate environment. And then there's also, if you think, I mean, the, the fish that I study um, live in the tropics or, or subtropics, so there's not so much photo period um, difference, but there's, there's definite patterns in water availability, which drives the um, availability of food and, and the quality of the food. So, so all these cues at some level, they, they need to converge on doing a similar thing, right? Which is turning that pilot light down. And that means, you know, turning down protein synthesis and turning down ion pumping. So are there really common kind of subcellular things that happen to, to do that? Yeah. One of the, one of the things that we've, we've only just discovered in the last few years in killifish, it's been known more in insects and, and other and nematodes for longer, is that there are um, hormones actually that are produced in different amounts depending on things like photoperiod or food availability or crowding. So it, it looks like there is a common um, mechanism where organisms sense their environment and decide whether or not it, it looks like winter is coming or dry season is coming. And um, while they're active and while there's lots of food around, they produce hormones that signal, yes, we're, it's time to be happy and you know, reproduce or whatever, go, go forth and multiply. Um, and then when those conditions change, they turn off the production of those, of those hormones. And um, that initiates a gene expression program that prepares and eventually induces the, the organism to go dormant. We know the most about this in nematode worms, in Cenorhabditis uh, elegans, the sort of model nematode worm. They enter into a, a diapause-like state called dour, which is a, a larval state that goes dormant. And they, they do that in response to um, crowding or, or low food availability. And there's a, a what's called a nuclear receptor, which is essentially a transcription factor that has a ligand binding spot. So it's looking for um, a molecule to bind to it. And in this case, it would be the the hormone, a, a daphrochronic acid, which is a hormone that binds to this thing and um, makes it an active transcription factor. So it will go and bind to various places in the genome and turn on all these genes that are good for reproduction and growth. If you um, withdraw that, that hormone, then the that transcription factor um, actually... Um, can access a whole bunch of other different spots in the genome, and it turns on the uh, program for dour, and so the, the larvae will actually go dormant. And uh, what we discovered a few years ago is that the, the protein that's most similar to that in, in vertebrates is the vitamin D receptor. And so, you know, you think about taking vitamin D to keep your um, uh, blood calcium regulated properly and have strong and healthy bones, but it's a really potent hormone that actually has um, the ability to control uh, metabolism and immune function. And in the killifish, it's actually the mechanism that regulates whether or not they go dormant. So if there's vitamin D around, they will be active and develop. If you withdraw vitamin D or prevent it from being synthesized, then they actually go dormant. Um, and the fact that this similar um, protein um, nuclear receptor in uh, a nematode worm and a killifish regulate the same type of dormancy um, suggests that either convergent evolution, right, is at work here in a major way, or um, I prefer it's an ancient mechanism. Yeah, I think it's really an ancient mechanism. 
So the the getting into the diapause state, uh, how fast does this happen? Is it sort of a every system shuts down at the same rate in the same way, or is there variety in, in how that occurs? Yeah, I think there's variety in how that occurs, but it typically takes days to weeks because um, entering diapause is really about um, completely changing the gene expression, you know, which genes are turned on, which genes are turned off, and then they have to accumulate specific proteins and other things that are needed to uh, regulate metabolism and stabilize um, uh, proteins in other parts of the cell. So for in, in killifish, it takes um, probably uh, a week or so for them to produce the diapause phenotype. And then even when they're in diapause, um, it's not like diapause is a static state. So they actually keep changing over time um, in in ways that are super interesting and really not well understood, I think, in general. Yeah, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that, if, if you're okay with it, Jason, because I, until I was reading your work, I I'd somehow never really thought, you know, you, you go quiescent, you turn down to the, to the pilot light, and things just wait. But no, it's actually incredibly challenging to maintain that state. So we talked a little bit about stabilizing macromolecules and, and hard candy. One of my favorite examples that was from one of your papers was about Artemia shrimp and how they sort of change the way that their mitochondria are, uh, are, are doing uh, oxidation. How, how, does that, how does that work? Yeah, so um, we, know, we know the most about how organisms enter into these dormant stages. We know a little bit about what keeps them in there. And then we know even less about um, the mechanisms that terminate diapause. So what happens most of the time is, you know, if you look at the organism from the outside, you don't really see anything changing. I mean, they're dormant. They're not, cells aren't dividing anymore. So they look static, but in reality, there's all sorts of, of changes happening on the molecular level. Um, and you would think that it would even be, um, because we know that the, the genome's not active. They're not, you know, transcription might be 90% reduced. Protein synthesis is 90 or 95% reduced. But they still, you see over time, proteins will start to accumulate. I don't know if they're being synthesized or if they're just degrading slower than everything else. Um, you know, mRNAs will actually um, increase in abundance. So there's been a lot of studies done in, in that. So, so we know that these changes are happening and that some part of those changes eventually um, releases the organism from, from this dormancy. The only... Um, mechanistic study that I can think of was actually done in annual killifish fairly recently. And they found that um, you have to actually, it was the polycomb genes, which are um, genes that control methylation of histones and, and DNA. Um, those have to be regulated in a specific way uh, that, that basically keeps these muscle transcription factors active Basically, if you disrupted these polycomb genes, then it was harder for the embryo to stay dormant and they would spontaneously come out of dormancy faster. Um, and I can only imagine that that's only one part of the story because in, in the stage of embryos they were looking at, there are muscle cells there, but there are also neurons and heart cells and, and other. And I wonder there's probably a similar program playing out in all those other different cell types. Wow, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, to, to remind listeners about the role of these histones, it's it's how the, the DNA is sort of wound up. So they're going to 
the, the extent to which that happens, where it happens, how it happens is going to influence what packets of genes sort of have the opportunity to be expressed. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Can you tell us, um, there was an allusion to it, and man, I probably don't even, shouldn't even ask this because I'm so, I'm so indulgent every time we do one of these shows, but you mentioned in, I think, an AJP paper, a lot of different authors on there, that the immune system actually gets active in some diapausing taxa, but I don't remember reading much more about that. What can you tell us? Well, um, what I can say is that um, there are a number of different genes involved in the um, immune system that have very specific expression patterns during diapause. Um, Interleukin-1 beta, for instance, um, seems to be um, upregulated during active development and downregulated during diapause. Why that would be, I have no idea, because at the time when this is happening, there isn't theoretically a um, active immune system. So um, it, it may be that um, the signaling, I mean, the immune system is a great example of um, how powerful cell signaling can be, right? It's all about activating one cell type or another. And it may be that those really active and potent and, and highly conserved cell signaling pathways are used differently during diapause than they are in an adult organism. Um, but they're used that way because they have an unmistakable and powerful um, effect on regulating how one cell talks to another, basically. Yeah, I was intrigued by that statement because there's some of my favorite studies in this field of ecological immunology in, involve, um, I think it's ground squirrels of some sort, and the arousals that they show during hibernation. And that's been argued to sort of every now and then you ramp up your immune system, clear out the bad guys that may have gotten into you while you're in a dormant state, and then drop back down into a low activity state. So, you know. Oh, that's a neat idea. I haven't heard that. Yeah. Isn't that, huh. isn't that cool? That's been seen in a couple of different species. I always think of that as like, you know, your cells are just sort of accumulating lots of crap and you need to warm up and get everything normal and just, you know. And it's and it's probably that too, right? It's not it's not necessarily one purpose. But, um, you know, with, with what we were talking about earlier, that diapause is a, is a different thing, maybe of degree at least, than hibernation. Well, I also think, you know, as you talk about the immune system, I mean, the first thing that pops into my head is the microbiome. And this is an area that I, has been completely understudied, but I am convinced that there are um, host microbe interactions during diapause that are absolutely cute, critical for um, entering dormancy. And I think maybe even exiting dormancy may be more important. Do you have examples in mind? Um, no, I, I can't. I mean... No, I can't think of an example right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grant proposals yet to be written, right? Yeah. Well, I'm not an expert in this. I just read a paper on it, and it so fascinated me. And I, I can't remember all the specific examples, but there are clear examples where organisms have to wake up to deal with pathogens. Um, but there are also examples of, of microbial compounds that are found in dormant organisms and it's it's still not clear whether or not, I mean, these are, if you think about all of the different metabolic compounds that you see in the human body, a lot of them, we don't, we don't, we can't make them ourselves, right? We, we um, rely on our microbial um, partners to do that for us. And we see some of those same compounds actually um, accumulating in killifish embryos while they're dormant. So that's the, the thing that I'm thinking about is where do these come from? Are they microbes growing on the outside of the egg? Because we're, we're looking at whole eggs or whole embryos. Or are they um, endosymbionts that are actually packaged into the yolk and are playing a very key role? And we don't, we don't know that yet. But 
I'm on the side of thinking that it's probably we've underestimated the importance of the holobiont and and our microbial partners, and they're probably playing a key role in the regulation of diapause as well. about uh, how organisms come out of diapause and, and the cues that are involved. But let me just go ahead and ask anyway, uh, what are some examples of ways that the pilot light gets turned back up? And, and are there better and worse ways to do that? Uh, are there ways that, you know, minimize damage to the system as it's coming back online? And are there ways that, you know, blast it with oxygen radicals or whatever as, as you're ramping up mitochondrial activity? So um, I, I think about uh, coming out of dormancy, do you remember Apollo 13, the movie, right? Where the, everything went, went wrong and they had to restart all their batteries in exactly the right way, or it was going, the whole system was going to fail and they would never make it back to earth. Well, (laughs) that's the way I think about, um, coming out of dormancy because everything's shut down, but man, if you don't start things up in exactly the right sequence and make sure that everything is, um, in sync, you're, it would be very easy to exhaust all of your energy stores or to start up the wrong process first and damage, you know, um, some other part of the cell. So I'm certain that there is a very set pathway out of dormancy that has to be regulated. And it sounds like almost universal, right? If, if I mean, the basic cellular biology is the same across all of life, essentially. So. Exactly, exactly. And what we see is, so if you look at organisms there, I mean, if you think about um what I said earlier is for diapause, there usually has to be a cue that reactivates things. Um, for some organisms, that's a certain number of days at a certain cold temperature. And you can actually measure it out like a clock. And so, and they know that after that point, something changes at the molecular level that that removes the block. For other organisms, for things like our, like sea monkeys, like Artemia, right, brine shrimp, um, it's actually being dried out that seems to break the the uh, diapause. And so as soon as they get rehydrated, they, they develop. So um, the reason this is so hard to, to define and the reason that I'm fumbling around the actual answer to the question, one, I don't know the answer, but two, is that because the organism, you know, because diapause isn't static and things are changing on a continual basis during the whole time, it's, it's hard to say, you know, to look at that embryo or that organism and say, oh, it stopped. It came out of dormancy right there. That's the cue, right? And so we haven't we haven't narrowed it down yet. We know there are all these molecular changes that happen over time, and there have been a couple of studies that have shown that once once you're ready to start um, being active again, it happens very quickly. So the metabolic rate will increase rather rapidly, and it's usually associated with entry back into the cell cycle and and that whole cycle of growth and and uh, proliferation of cells. But we don't understand um, how you get from that state, which we can fairly um, reasonably observe and measure. We don't know how far back we have to go to see where the cue that actually set that in place um, is is happening. And I I personally think that there um, there are some uh, circadian rhythm genes um, that are super important in that because we see them differentially expressed when an organism enters into diapause. And it's oftentimes um, photo period or some similar cue like that that uh, will um, 
induce the the um, embryo to start developing again, basically. Jason, we've hardly talked to you about killifish. This is kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about killifish then. Um, tell us a little bit about you know the the particulars of diapause in this species, the ecological context that selected for it and sort of ha- has some relation to. And um, if if I can ask you what I want to know about, if you want to frame your answer from this perspective, is what your your lab, I think, has recently been working on is sort of what role moms are playing in diapause of the embryos. And what is very cool to me that they seem to have some control over how diapause, at least one one stage, diapause two, I think you call it, happens in those animals. So so what's diapause about and and how are moms involved? So for annual killifish, I mean, they live in ephemeral ponds, right? They live in mud puddles out in the middle of nowhere. And they've invested their ability to survive in this um, temporary habitat, temporary aquatic habitat, by producing eggs that can survive in the soil when it dries out. And they they have the ability to enter three different diapause stages called diapause one, two, and three. Very um, creative. creative. Yes. <laughs> uh, diapause one happens super early in development and where you basically have a bunch of stem cells um, and no differentiation, at least at this point, uh, that we can see anyway. Um, diapause two, which you mentioned, happens about midway through development, where you you have an embryo that if you if you needed to, you could you could definitely identify that embryo as a vertebrate embryo. It's got all of the characteristics that you would associate with an animal that has a backbone. It's got eyes, a nervous system, um, the the musculature of the trunk is is formed. They're called somites at that point. Um, and it actually has a beating heart before this, um, before they enter diapause. And in many cases, that beating heart stops while they're in diapause. So super cool there. And then there's diapause three, which is at the very end of development, which is essentially a fully formed little fish that's ready to eat. It's absorbed most of its yolk. Um, uh, and is, as soon as they hatch, they eat and swim around and grow extremely fast. Those three different diapause stages, in theory, are are needed because each one lasts about um, a month to three months, sometimes more than that, depending on the environmental conditions. But um, if the embryo enters all three stages, that gets you, um, you know, probably nine months at least of, of time when you're developing. And that's usually about the time where it takes to get from the end of one uh, wet season through the dry season to the start of the next wet season. Um, so what my lab is focused on mostly is this diapause too, because this is the diapause that we know that the the mom can influence directly. And it's a great story how we figured this out because it was it was discovered by some really observant undergraduates working in my lab. They were working in the fish room, so you know this army basically of undergrads that help keep these fish happy in the lab. We have to feed them twice a day, change the water twice a day, collect embryos twice a week. You know, so there's a lot of work just associated with with keeping these fish happy. And I had these two um, super inquisitive and observant undergrads, um, Ian Garrett and Zach Cole, who are both now scientists out in the world themselves. And they noticed that some some females were producing eggs that didn't go into diapause. And some would produce eggs that would stay in this diapause too for long periods of time. And so at first we thought, oh man, we had a spontaneous mutation. I, we can isolate those females and we'll have a strain of killifish that doesn't produce diapause in embryos. Well, 
a lot of work later, um, we realized that that was not the case, but that a, an individual female can choose, um, for lack of a better word, or produce on any given day, a whole distribution of, of embryo phenotypes of different types of embryos. Some of them, so any one female, I can't predict for you when I go to collect embryos from a female killifish, whether that embryo will enter diapause two or not. Some part of her brood of embryos that she produces that day will go into diapause two. Some will not. Um, some will go directly to diapause three and stop there. Some won't stop in diapause three. They'll directly hatch. So something that the female is doing is programming the, the, her eggs to follow different developmental trajectories. Right? So we discovered that. And I've spent the last, um, I guess that was in 2010. So what is that? 10, 11 years trying to figure out how and why, right? Uh, and that's how we actually ended up discovering the um, vitamin D pathway and, and how it regulates diapause too. Um, the embryos that are going to enter into diapause don't produce vitamin D. And the ones that are going to, um, they call, they're called escape embryos because they escape dormancy. So they actively developing, we call escape embryos, um, produce vitamin D and, and they um, can develop. So we thought at first that the mom would be packaging some hormone maybe into the eggs or or some um, gene product, either a protein or an mRNA into the eggs. Uh, so we did some screening for what genes. So if you look at um, uh, early development, so let's say from fertilization until uh, you form a, a big solid ball of cells called a blastula, it's basically a bunch of cell divisions and you go from one big cell to a lots of little cells. That process called cleavage is controlled by the maternal genome. It's whatever she packages into the eggs is what controls that process. It's not the, the zygotic genome itself that um, is actually silent during that part of development. So we thought, well, we should look at these early eggs and clearly we'll find some mRNA that the, the um, female is packaging into these eggs and um, that either makes it a diapause or a non-diapause embryo. And uh, this is the story of my career as a scientist. I always have the naive idea that it's going to be simple, and it never is <laughs> simple. But but I've never learned either. <laughs> I say that to my students all the time. Oh, this experiment's going to be easy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> biology, man, it's never that exactly. way. <laughs> exactly. But um, so what we found was when we did that is that we couldn't tell if we just looked at which mRNAs were packaged into an egg. Um, if we looked at them based on the genes that they those mRNAs came from, there was no difference it, that we could tell based on our um, on our analysis. But what we did see is that different genes had different splice variants that were packaged. And a splice variant would be, imagine a gene has um, 10 different building blocks, which we call exons, that can make up the, the protein of interest, right? But they may, they may have alternate building blocks. So you can imagine... Um, taking those 10 building blocks and maybe for one copy of it, you only use eight of them. Or for another copy, you use you have 8A and 8B and you use 8B instead of eight. Um, and so there, there are ways to basically diversify the, the genes that we have um, by recombining them during transcription when we actually express those genes. And we found some very interesting genes that have different splice variants in embryos that are not going to enter diapause versus those that do enter diapause. So we just figured that out a few years ago, and we haven't been able to go in and alter those, 
the expression or packaging of those genes in a way um, that would allow us to experimentally tell if they're actually having an effect. We're working on that now, but um, but we haven't been able to do that yet. Technically, it's difficult. So there's a piece here that I'm, I'm not quite connected to the dots. So there's splice variants that are there, and mom is putting different cocktails of splice variants in different eggs. So it's in it's in her genome. She has this disposition for making the kind of same but different proteins, right? They're mostly the same kind of thing, but there's some important difference that's maybe giving the, the dormancy versus the escape versions. Yeah, that, that would be our hypothesis. But it's been untested as of yet because the other thing, I mean, this is the great story of the power of, a, of an organism um, like like annual killifish, I mean, there's a lot of questions that we can ask with this, but there are also some limitations. And one thing that we realized right away, what we wanted to do is inject the embryos with uh, foreign um, RNAs or block RNAs. And they're really good at taking our foreign RNAs and expelling them from their cells. <laughs> so, Get that out of here. <laughs> so, so, nice try, noob. The, not going exactly. <laughs> Yeah. They're like, nope, not going to do it. So we're <laughs> we're working on that. Um, the reason that we thought this was so such a great theory is because there's this part of development that's maternally controlled, this early part of development, and then eventually the the zygotic genome has to take over, right? And during that transition, there are um, other RNA molecules called small non-coding RNA molecules or microRNAs that are produced that can clear out all of those maternally packaged um, transcripts. So if the mom packages a bunch of mRNAs into an egg, eventually you don't, you don't want those to hang around too long because they may, they may conflict with what the embryo needs to do later on. Enough with the parental control, like exactly. thanks mom, but like- Exactly. <laughs> So can I zoom in a different direction, zoom out uh, and ask uh, sort of an ecological and evolutionary set of questions about about the context for this? So so this sounds like a kind of bet hedging by the female, right, where she's creating different types of embryos that, you know, depending on some future ecological events or the rapidity of the drying of the pool, you know, will one one kind might be good and another kind might not be. So so is that the sort of is that what you killifish biologists think think of this process? Is it is it a way of dealing with uncertainty about the future? Yes, um, that is what I thought until I went out into the field um, last year and actually looked at what they're doing in the wild. Ah, so always a revelation, right? Yeah, you know it's it's just a reminder not to to become too complacent and happy with yourself in your lab studies. You've got to go back out and um, and look at how it works in the field. So yeah, from a from sort of a, a normal evolutionary biologist standpoint, this is a classic bet hedging strategy. You don't want, if you live in a, an environment that is variable and extreme like these, I mean, for a fish, you know, no water is a pretty extreme environment. And so, so they, you know, they have to, um, putting all your eggs in one basket would be a bad idea, right? If all of the embryos did exactly the same thing, and um, they were all, you know, sitting at diapause two, and then the rains came and they couldn't continue developing, then you would miss the chance to have a, a generation of fish. You know, conversely, if they all break diapause and they're sitting there in the soil waiting for the pond to refill, and it refills, but it but there's not enough water for it to be around long enough for them 
to um, reach sexual maturity and, and spawn, then you have the failure of a whole generation of fish. And you, you can't really afford either of those situations. So that was the, the thought that we had is that um, uh, early on when people discovered diapause in, in annual killifish, it was a guy named John Worms who coined the term multiplier effect. And his thought was there's these three different diapause stages. They should all have um, different uh, environmental cues that induce them. And because of that, you have, if you take three to the third power, you've got a lot of different potential developmental trajectories or timings of um, uh, that you can produce based on having three diapauses. So that's sort of the thinking that everybody's had about um, these three diapauses. And, and it might be true, but when we went out into the field, what we found was, is there was zero... Um, that at least that we could that we could find there was zero variability in in the embryonic in the embryo bank in the soil. So we went out to Mozambique and we dug up soil from a wet pond and and sifted through. You want to talk about um, taking away the the mystique of field work? We basically shoveled I don't know how many pounds of of mud and sifted it through like <laughs> kitchen strainers looking for eggs for hours and hours and hours on tent. Yes, it was so glamorous. And, you know, we did that. And when when we looked at a pond when it was full of water, 100% of the embryos that we found were in diapause one, this early stage that I haven't even hardly studied yet. And um, then when we came back at the transition from just when the pond was just starting to dry out, maybe there's still a little bit of, of mud around and there's there's moisture, but not enough for fish to be swimming in. And we dug up the soil then, we found... Um, embryos transitioning from that diapause one to diapause two. If you come back during the middle of the dry season, 100% of the embryos we found were in diapause two. And then when we came back at the end of the dry season, when there had been a few rains and things were starting to get moistened again, we would again see embryos in between diapause two and diapause three. So that they're actually using this sequence very um, uniformly to respond to the environment rather than, you know, if, if bet hedging was the, the actual mechanism, we would expect every time we went out there to see, um, a variety of different developmental stages, but we didn't see that. So, so Jason, is that, couldn't the optimal strategy be for that an individual embryo to make the kind of best decision as it experiences different environments through time? I mean, that's still, I think that's optimal at the level of the individual. But, but that's not, that's not bed hedging by the mom, though. That that's decisions by the individual, right? Right. So it is still, like, bed hedging in a weird way, such that there's a built-in propensity to take advantage of dynamic, weird, maybe even unpredictable conditions, right? It is it is overall a bed hedging strategy, but for any given individual, it's a relatively safe thing to have the inherent plasticity to take advantage of what's going on. Yeah, I agree. I, I think for this species, um, inherent variability is definitely um, uh, part of the strategy. And one of the reasons I say that is that both in the lab and in the field, when you do get these intermediate conditions of it's not quite dry or not quite wet, not all of those embryos respond to that environment in the same way. So you might see some embryos that start to develop very quickly as soon as there's enough moisture to support um, development, whereas other ones will still be in diapause for a little bit, and then they'll they'll and they might even develop at a different rate. Um, we'll see once they start developing. So there's definitely 
um, some ability that affects their response to the environment. But it seems like whatever bet hedging there is, it's really probably aimed at how at dictating how the embryo responds to the environment rather than assuming you know, an all or nothing response like you often talk about with a bet hedging strategy. Sure, because the mom is never really, I mean, the whole definition, it's unpredictable. So you really don't know what the outcome is going to be. It, it That's why I'm so understanding it. It kind of is a bet hedge because it is unpredictable. <laughs> you, you are, you're giving that inherent plasticity, that latent plasticity, because you really don't know what it's going to be. But would you say that it seems more like bet hedging when you're in the lab situation because... Um the the moms and the embryos aren't getting all of the natural cues that they would out in the wild in Mozambique, right? So is, is that part of it? Yeah, I, t- I totally think that's the case. In fact, when if you just look at the laboratory studies, it looks like a classic case of bed hedging, where you get some of the embryos that go into diapause and some that don't. And I think that it's the absence of the cues. Now, I'm not 100% convinced it would be the cues from the for the mom or the, if it's the cues from the embryos themselves. But some cue is missing there that would induce them to uh, stop in diapause um, like they do in the wild. Now, I should note that I'm talking right now about fish in Mozambique, which is a completely different species of annual killifish from Ostrofundulus. That's the species that I study that comes from uh, northern South America, from Venezuela. Um, however, we've, we've done similar studies in South America. They, we just haven't analyzed the data yet, and we see similar trends in both the South American fish and the, the African fish. Do you think, Jason, there's a, a the presence of a cue in the lab? You talk about the absence of cues, but do you think that there's anything weird about having all the goodies that you want to eat? And, you know, presumably your undergraduates aren't eating the fish, but I may be making too strong of an assumption. <laughs> as, far as, I, as far as I know, I think I'm the only one that's eaten um, any of our killifish. I actually tried them once because I thought... I thought they'd make a great protein source. Like if you could pack a million of these eggs into a spaceship to go to Mars and then you could just, you know, grow fish once you got there. But then I thought, well, what if they're poisonous? I don't know. Nobody's ever, <laughs> never, I don't know if anybody's ever eaten one. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I actually baked them once with little, um, you know, garlic and onion. They're, they're not bad. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> Tastes like garlic and onion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You put enough on there. It's not bad. Um, so, you know, I think that um, I, I think there's definitely something to be said for that. I mean, in you know, in the lab, they're in a really controlled environment. We control their photo period at 14 hours of light, 10 hours of dark. They're at a temperature of about 26 to 27 degrees, you know, Celsius, which is what 80 some degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So, you know, and it's it's constant. And we give them, gosh, we feed them. They eat better than I do for sure. If you were to look at like cost per pound of food. I mean, they're eating gourmet fish food, basically, um, and uh, and they really don't want for anything. So, you know, in a way, you could say that that's a really artificial um, uh, environment for them, because I'm sure that in the wild, they're, you know, scrapping for food. They're probably fighting all the time. They're, you know, avoiding predators and stress. They live in drying ponds. I mean, life is rough, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, that it may be the absence of, of some of those other cues, either social or environmental that, um, give us the bet heading strategy that we see in the lab. And that could explain why it's different than what we see in the field.
Um, we want to move on to some ending stuff and start thinking about wrapping up, but um, I'm just so fascinated by this this killifish system and the fact of them living in drying ponds that this is sort of one more thing I, I got to know, which is how do they disperse among sites? And does do they disperse when it's wet, like when there's water everywhere, or do they disperse when it's, they're dry and like they you know they blow around or get carried by animal hooves or or what? Is that known? Well, it's not known, but there have been some really interesting studies done. So I will say this: having been in both South America and Africa during torrential rains, um, it's it's clear they they live in these places that has um, clay a lot of clay soil, which is great because clay soil holds on to water when it when it dries out, and they probably need that. But it also means that when you have a torrential rain event, um, the water doesn't soak into the soil very fast. And so you will have spread out all over the place. And so there'll just be large areas that are inundated with water. And then the next day, you know, all the water runs out. But there's so there's a chance for fish to move around there. Um, there's long been the, the theory that they stick to bird feet um, and in mud on bird feet. And then that the birds... Um, disperse them. Although I don't know that anybody has ever tracked birds around and checked their feet to see if there's fish eggs on them. But if you also think about it, you know, most of these ponds are associated with um, large ungulates. In you know, in Africa, it used to be, you know, zebras and wildebeests and, and um, elephants. Now it's cattle. Um, and, you know, because you live in a xeric environment, all of those animals are drawn to the to the pond. So it's possible that they get stuck to, um, animal hooves or, or legs. Um, although again, I don't know if anybody's going around scraping the mud off of an elephant's foot to see if it's got a killifish embryo on it. But one study that I think is worth highlighting, um, they actually fed killifish embryos to swans or geese. I can't remember which one, a, a bird that eats, um, I'm pretty sure it was a swan. Um, and the embryo survived through its digestive tract and made the passage through. So it is possible that they could be um, eaten in one pond and deposited <laughs> in another. Wow, Jason, that's really frustrating. Now you're going to have to start having swans in your lab just for that stage of the life cycle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is so cool. We could go on forever. Um, let's sort of scale out here to the uh, applied side of things. Um, in root, though, I want to ask you about uh, and, and it's fair to say killifish or some other species of killifish we haven't talked about, but what other diapausing species warrants research attention? That's a tough one. I I mean, I think personally the the species that I'm most interested in seeing uh, more work done on would be these mammalian species that have delayed implantation because I think the, the potential there for um, regenerative medicine and... Um, and other reproductive uh, applications is is amazing um, to think that we could at some someday rather than freezing embryos to keep them um, viable or something for in vitro fertilization that we could actually induce a diapause and they could be stored at room temperature or something like that um, is super interesting. So I would like to see more work done on on that. Of course, those are difficult studies to do, and I think that's probably why it hasn't been studied more. But to be honest, I, I mean, you know, there's several hundred species of killifish, and I really think we just need to look at all of them because I love killifish. <laughs> You're going to be in work for quite some time. <laughs> plus, plus, it gets me out of the lab and out into the field and yeah. places like Africa and South America. But So I love this idea of kind of a applied diapause 
In fact, I think that'd be a good name for a company, Applied Diapause Incorporated. Um, is is I mean, you sort of just alluded to this, but is anybody working on trying to engineer Diapause into something that doesn't have it yet? Um, y- yes. So there are there are folks out there that are thinking about engineering uh, other species of fish to have diapause or, or dormancy. I don't know. I, I would be surprised if somebody wasn't out there trying to induce diapause in, in mammalian embryos that um, don't normally go dormant, although I'm not aware of that. But I, I would be super surprised if it wasn't happening. If we go all science fiction, are we going to be able to have like diapausing adult humans on space flights? You know, it's a super interesting question. And, I, you know, a decade ago, I would have said that's science fiction. You know, shut up. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but because I actually think that it might be possible. We may not do it the way, um, you know, that you, you see in, in the movies, you know, put them in some sort of a life support system or something. But it may be that um, Concepti could be, um, you know, sent through long-term space flight. And it's possible that we could put could make humans um, go dormant. I don't think it's in, you know an impossibility, but it's going to take a lot a lot of engineering and thought to do it. Um, that's and then then I, I just guess I should say this as I'm talking about it, and then we should ask ourselves if we want to do that, if that's the right thing to do ethically. I think there's a huge debate that needs to to um, be found there. But you know, like I said, I see this as more of a um, if we don't think about humans going dormant, um, we could think about the way that we can use dormancy to um, to support long-term spaceflight in terms of food sources and other things, right? If we can pack up a spaceship with a bunch of dormant killifish embryos and um, brine shrimp embryos and plant seeds and everything else, I mean, you, you could essentially construct a... a uh, artificial ecosystem when you got to some other planet that had enough water. Um, but the other the other thing about the science fiction part of it that I, I think is worth talking about is the fact that the we're discovering that the genes that regulate diapause also regulate aging. So it is, it is um, you know, it's insulin-like growth factor signaling and some uh, some other ones that are probably people are less familiar with. But um, yeah, so the work I'm doing right now is looking at diapause, but I'm also collaborating with folks that use killifish as models for aging because they're actually the fastest growing and aging um, vertebrates on the planet, as far as we know. There's some species that complete their whole life cycle from hatching to death in like six weeks. So, um, yeah, so it's it's really funny because you think on one side, early in their life, they, they want to slow everything down. And it's almost like there's a trade-off that if you do that, then at some point you pay the price and you have to do it super fast after that. So um, so we're really interested in looking at this. So, you know, this idea that um, that you could induce dormancy in a human and that they wouldn't age, that was the part for me is like, you know, as the scientist, I'm like, wow, they can't handle 100 years. They'd be old men or women by then, right? But, but if these diapause genes also regulate aging, Maybe it is real. Maybe it is possible, right? It's been really great, Jason. We really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. Let me know. I'll talk anytime. We can talk about killifish for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. 
To support the show, please consider making a monthly donation on our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. And don't forget your homework. This week, tell a friend about us. Mention us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or give us a review on Apple Podcasts. As a nonprofit, we rely on your help to spread the word. These small actions go a long way to growing our listenership and keeping us going. Please also follow us on social media for the latest Big Biology news. We especially encourage you to join our listener group on Facebook, where you can discuss the episode with other fans, create memes, and interact with the Big Biology team. We have links to the group on our social platforms, or simply search for Big Biology Listener Group on Facebook. On the next episode, we welcome our first repeat guest, Mike Levin, professor of biology at Tufts University, to talk about his new article in Eon entitled Cognition All the Way Down. In the article, Mike and co-author Dan Dennett claim that biology's next great leaps will come as scientists start to study systems as agents with agendas. An agenda is something that you can pursue flexibly, even when stuff around you is changing. So the fact that that organ primordium um, and various other things can can change and, and rearrange and still do what they need to do despite local changes means that mutations are far less likely to be deleterious. It means you can tolerate all kinds of mutations because stuff will still tend to get its job done, more or less. And that means that evolution can go much faster. And before we go, we want to tell you about a podcast you might like. I know Dino. We are in the golden age for dinosaur discoveries. A new dinosaur is discovered and named nearly every week. And I Know Dino is the only podcast that covers every new dinosaur discovery. After six years of production, I Know Dino is the world's largest dinosaur podcast. I Know Dino is made by adults for adults, but they keep it clean so kids can listen too. Not only do Sabrina and Garrett cover new discoveries, they also promote critical thinking when new claims are presented about dinosaurs. Previous topics have included how close are the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park to our current understanding. What did Spinosaurus use its sail for? Did T-Rex really have short useless arms? Was Velociraptors small and feathered? Did Dilophosaurus spit venom? What can fossilized gut contents tell us about dinosaur diets? Check them out wherever you get your podcast. Again, the podcast is I Know Dino. Thanks to Jordan Greer, Ajinkia Dahaki, and Dana Baxter for managing our social media channels and helping produce the podcast. And thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Emery for producing the episode. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear. 